Uh, we are beginning a new sermon series this morning in the book of Amos, the Old Testament prophet. Uh, and so what we often do with our scripture readings is we sort of read the opposite from the opposite testament at the same time. So uh, throughout January and February, we'll, we'll be reading out of the book of James. Uh, and so Dan Chornick is going to come read it for us. You can follow along here in your bulletin. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 11. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will, rec that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly bro brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Well, as I mentioned earlier in the service, we are beginning a series in the book of Amos this morning, and I want to say a few words about Amos before we begin. Uh, Amos is a prophet, and maybe, I don't know how much you know about prophets. That's the P-H-E-T, not P-R-O-F-I-T. He's a prophet. Uh, but they were not very popular. Uh, their main task, why they were generally called, was not to console or to encourage or to celebrate. I mean, uh, they did a little bit of that. But their main, the main task of a prophet is to awaken it's to confront. It's to call things out. And so the prophets generally functioned like smoke alarms, except that when they're going off, they are loudly beeping. You're trying to sleep. You know, you're having a nice, restful, peaceful night. And the prophet is trying to awaken you, awaken all of us to a reality that there is a fire, that there is something going wrong that we are ignoring. And so this prophet Amos, he was the first of the writing prophets. He came very early in Israel's history. I'll say more about that in the sermon. But he was the first one to put his sermons, his messages down in written form so that later generations, including us, uh, could read and understand them. And as you'll see this morning, Amos' message is foreboding. The nation of Israel, the northern nation of Israel, they're in deep trouble. They're not listening to God. They're not obeying God. Everything's not okay. The poor are being crushed. Everyone is loving false gods. But... Not everything is lost. That's what you'll hear over and over in Amos. The Lord is still in charge. He's still compassionate. He still forgives. He still offers hope for the future. But the question all the prophets are asking are, will, will we listen? Will, will we hear his message and change? So before we get more into it, before I say more things, I've got lots of things to say about Amos. We're going to read it, for, uh, read it together. It's on the back middle panel of your bulletin. Judy is going to come and read it for us. Please follow along as she does so. Amos 1, verse 1 to 2, verse 3. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, when he saw what he, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, 
The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing, threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Aben. And him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them to, up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and he, him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and they did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire on Timon, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. And their king shall go into exile, and he and his princes together, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the kingdom of Edom. And I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth. And Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet, I will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. All right, we're going to spend some time reflecting on this text together. Uh, I once had the chance to go to a conference in Poland, uh, and on the way I flew through Germany. And it was my first time traveling uh, alone uh, overseas. It was actually my first time in Europe. And I had taken an overnight flight uh, and got off in Frankfurt. And if you've taken an overnight flight, a red-eye flight, you know that you kind of wake up blurry and confused. It's morning, but it's not supposed to be morning. You know, everything's a little bit, a little bit off. Um, and so to get on my flight to Poland from Frankfurt, I had to pass through security again. Like I had to change terminals or something. Anyways, and while passing through security for the second time, my backpack tested positive uh, for bomb residue. Now, I didn't know that because the initial security people uh, there only spoke German. Uh, but with some gestures and with a little bit of broken English, they kind of told me, you know, stand, stand over here off to the side. 
But I figured out what was going on when, when uh, two guys with machine guns showed up uh, to make sure I didn't, you know, run away. And they spoke English, and they told me uh, what was going on. And everything turned out fine, false positive or whatever, terrify the foreigner. I'm not sure exactly what was happening. I was not arrested in Germany, though. But I do remember having this distinct feeling in the airport in Frankfurt that this is a different world. <laughs> I, I don't speak the language. I don't know anyone here. I'm all by myself. I don't really know what's going on. I've been told to stand in a corner. Uh, it's the morning. It's not supposed to be morning. I haven't really slept. You know, I'm a bit confused. There's like a lot going on and a lot that is disorienting. I had been injected into a strange world where everything was sort of wrong. Uh, this morning, Without a lot of preamble, we are injected into the world of Amos, the foreign world of Amos. There's a, a tiny bit of context and introduction, and then Amos just sort of begins, and he's listing off places and people that, that are foreign. The book come, this book comes to us from a faraway place, a faraway time. It is actually, it was written, it was spoken to a nation that does not exist anymore. And that is one of the reasons why we study the prophets here. Because their voice, inspired by God, it comes to us from a time and a place very different from our own, from the one that we inhabit, and it jars us, it shakes us up, it's discordant, something's out of tune, it's not harmonizing with the way that we normally tend to think. And the very fact that Amos speaks to the ten northern tribes of Israel, a nation state that only existed for uh, maybe a few years afterwards, it ought to awaken us to the seriousness of what Amos is saying to them. So this is where we are this morning. We've awoken in a strange land. There's different words and vocabulary and tone, but I would encourage you, take Amos seriously. In this book, we're going to see ourselves, we're going to see God, we're going to see the work and person of Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I have three, uh, today's outline is a bit unusual because I have three points, and that's very typical of me, three points. Uh, but point one is just verse one, and point two is just verse two, and then point three is all the rest of the verses uh, put together. And, and I think it'll make sense why I chose this outline, but the first part, we'll talk about the words of Amos, this little introduction. Then we'll talk about this, the Lord roars, that'll be part two. And then third, what I'm calling war oracles, war oracles. Okay, verse one, the words of Amos. Four words in, we have, I have a question. We have a question. Who is speaking in the book of Amos? Is God speaking to his people or is Amos speaking? Is this book simply the insights of a keen-eyed uh, observer of Israelite culture? <laughs> or or is, does the God of the universe have something to say to his people? And a skeptical person might insist, well, look, the answer is right here in verse 1. The words of Amos. Just a human but it's not so simple as that, because if you kind of skip down to verse 3, it says, thus says the Lord. And then it comes up many, many more times later. A classic formulation where the a prophet says, I'm not speaking on my own behalf, I'm speaking on God's behalf. Now again, if you're a bit more of a skeptical, cynical person, you might say, well, I too can speak on behalf of God. What if I wander around saying, oh, God says this and God says that? Well, I mean, you could, but a person in ancient Israel couldn't. In ancient Israel, there were serious stakes to such a claim. Israelite law stipulated, if a person claims to speak on behalf of God, if they say, this is what God says, and that thing, whatever they say, comes untrue, they would execute you for that. It was, it was capital punishment. You couldn't wander around ancient Israel being like, well, God says this and God says that. If you get it wrong, you're dead. 
So with the benefit of history and hindsight, and, and with the benefit of history and hindsight, we actually know that what Amos says in his book does come true. But we have this sort of conundrum. Verse 1, Amos's words. Verse 3 and onwards, God's words. What do we make of this? What I would tell you is this is a curious and mysterious interplay between a human and God when it comes to writing scriptures. That God inspires, but a real human writes it down. That God speaks in, in some way, and the human communicates it to others in, in human language. That God is the author, but also the human who writes it is the author. Both are true. Uh, Francine Rivers, who's a Christian author, uh, she writes about Amos. She incorporates all the facts we know kind of from this book, uh, but takes artistic license in just imagining, well, how did it happen? You know, where was he when God spoke to him? You know, was he with his sheep or whatever? She kind of discusses the backstory in his ministry. And she talks about the visions he has, how he hears God speak to him. And what I find most interesting is she uses all these words to describe how Amos felt. At times it felt like he's being swept away, and then he's like he's drowning in revelation. And then he feels feverish, and then he feels incredibly lucid and terrified. He kind of goes, he kind of bounces all over the place. Now, how exactly did God speak at Amos, right? Uh, we, we don't know. How, how is this book simultaneously the words of Amos and the word of God, the mechanics of it? We can imagine it, but, but it's a bit mysterious. We just say it's both, that the Lord is speaking through the personality, the circumstances, the background, the pen of Amos. Now, who exactly is Amos? We get just a very few biographical details. If you look in verse 1, he's among the shepherds of Tekoa. That's a small place near Jerusalem. So it's in Judah, the southern kingdom, uh, but it was pretty close to the border with Israel, uh, the northern kingdom. To be among the shepherds, you might think, well, that means he's a shepherd, right? Uh, there, there's, a, there's pretty good extra biblical evidence to suggest that this word actually means that Amos was in charge of the shepherds, that he was sort of running a shepherding operation, a sheep raising operation. Uh, and so he's not probably not a shepherd per se, though he might have you know, watched sheep now and then. Timeline wise, we learn in verse one that his ministry takes place during the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and Jeroboam, the second Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Uh, the biblical history of kings, reasonably intact. We have a pretty good amount of certainty to say that Amos is ministering around 760 BC. And that's a very interesting time in world history. No major world powers are really present. They're all kind of fighting with each other and declining and rising, at least in the Mediterranean region. You know, China's doing its own thing and whatever. But in the Mediterranean, there's no major world powers. Assyria will be the next major power to emerge, but they got internal issues. They got stuff going on. So lots of smaller kingdoms like Israel are thriving. They're prospering economically, socially, uh, you know, populations growing because they're not fighting as many battles. But all is not well. Israel is, though, doing well externally, internally, spiritually. They're completely bankrupt. Justice is broken down. The poor are being exploited. Sexual sin is rampant. We will get to that all in future weeks. But this is the world Amos is ministering to. And let me just draw one quick lesson out of this before we, we move on. And the lesson, is, I think, is this, that God calls people to ministry and not always in ways that make sense to us. If you think about it, Amos will be a cross-cultural missionary prophet. He's going to leave his home in Tekoa in Judah. He's going to go north to what is at that point an enemy nation and give them bad news. Israel and Judah fought all the time during this period, and yet God's like, those are the people I want you to go to. 
And additionally, Amos is not formally trained. He's, he's, not, he's not sort of from the school of priests and prophets. He's very likely a businessman. You know, he, he grew up probably not wanting to be a prophet. He's like, I'm going to own a lot of sheep. That's what I'm going to do. The story of Amos is like a South Sudanese mortgage broker suddenly called to you know, go, go to Sudan, go to northern Sudan, uh, as a missionary. Or it's like an Anglophone, you know, born in Cornwall, training as a drywaller, you know, moving to Manawaki. I'm going to be a missionary to these people. And also Ontario and Quebec, we would, you know, need to be at war to kind of complete that analogy. But, you know, the, these callings don't make a lot of sense. Amos is calling on the surface. You'll be like, doesn't seem like a great idea. But God's ways are not our ways. And I would just submit to you this morning, it's possible that you're looking around at your life, looking around at your coworkers, your neighbors, your family, and wondering, why did God send me to these people? It doesn't seem to fit. God calls people for his purposes to his places, and there are no mistakes made. And also, I would just want to slide this in as someone in full-time ministry work. Don't be so sure that God isn't calling you to full-time work in ministry. Sometimes he calls business people. Sometimes he calls unlikely people, you ought not rule it out. But that's the first part, the words of Amos. Part two, the Lord roars. Look at verse two. And he, that's Amos, said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. Now, as I've said, uh, and we will find out later in the book, Amos is prophesying in Israel, the northern kingdom. If you read some of the books of Samuel and Kings, you will know the, nor the capital of the northern kingdom is this place called Samaria. And the chief places of worship in the northern kingdom are two cities called Bethel and Dan, at the kind of the, the north and south of the kingdom. Jerusalem, the capital and chief place of worship, is not in the northern kingdom, but it's in Judah. It's in the southern kingdom. Where is God roaring from? Not Bethel, not Dan, not Samaria. He's roaring from Jerusalem, from Zion, the city of God. See, Israel has gone off. The ten tribes have gone off. They've abandoned the true God. They set up their own altars, their own high places. The initial reason was we're just going to worship God in our own place, uh, but that's long been abandoned. And Amos is preaching. It begins with this reminder that the, where, of where the true God is worshipped, where his, his footstool is, which is in Jerusalem. And what does God want to say? Well, at first he actually doesn't say anything. He roars like a lion. Now, that's an ominous beginning. God does have things to say to Israel, but before any words are uttered, there is this roar. Now, what does a roar represent? What's, what's the meaning of it? Well, a lion roars to show its power. A roar intimidates. It's a, it's a warning. It's a message. A roar basically communicates, as far as I understand, you know, lions and stuff, that this territory is mine. This is my territory. I control it. So when the Lord is roaring from Zion, he's saying to Israel, saying to the northern kingdom, you belong to me. You're mine. I have a message from you. I'm not your peer. I'm not your buddy. I'm just not a rival kingdom. I am your king. And what happens when the people hear the Lord roaring from Zion? If you look at the second half of verse 2, the pastures of the shepherds mourn, the top of Carmel withers. withers. Now why would pastures mourn at the roaring of God? And the grass is crying out. Well, pastures mourn when there's no water, when drought comes. 
And the second part kind of reinforces this. Carmel was a range of mountains in the northern kingdom of Israel. It's actually, if you know the prophet Elijah, he hides out there at one point uh, around the Mount Carmel. But it was a lush area. It never ran out of water because of the mountains. You know, they'd have, they'd have snow on them or whatever. The roaring of the Lord is leading to drought and devastation in the pastures, like the lowlands, but also on the very heights of the mountains. See, this verse here from Amos reminds us that Amos's way of thinking is very foreign to us. Why is God roaring? Why would God bring drought? Well, because being overrun by wild animals, having drought-filled devastation, these are both curses promised in the covenant that Israel made with God. All of Israel, all 12 tribes that entered into a covenant, they made this solemn promise, we are going to be God's people. And if you read Deuteronomy, there's, all, there's this long chapter filled with blessings and curses. Blessings for obedience and faithfulness, curses for disobedience, unfaithfulness. And Israel has been unfaithful. So what God is saying in this chapter is, I will be the enforcer of the covenant. You haven't lived up to it. I'm not going to stand for it. I, the roaring lion, the lion of Judah, will bring devastation to Israel. Now the larger question here is, does this sound like God? Maybe you're wondering that. A roaring lion bringing devastation, bringing drought? Does that sound like Jesus? How do we understand God in light of this passage from Amos? Well, what the prophets are highlighting and what they tend to highlight is uh, about God is his justice and his unwillingness to let evil thrive. The, the prophets remind us God is not content this let things go because of his, his love, if that could even be called love. Indeed, it is actually part of his love that he will not allow humanity to go on harming each other. One of the more disturbing parts of the recent uh, wars in Ukraine, Israel, Gaza, have been the atrocities inflicted on the unarmed combatants. And I grant, fog of war, misinformation, all that, sure. It surely taints what we know and what we see, what we hear, of course. The stories of murder and rape, kidnapping, torture, and so on, mass murders, it's sickening. And to those of us on the opposite side of the world who can really, most of us, offer very little besides prayer, it's easy to wonder, just about these two situations, it's easy to wonder, how is this ever going to be made right? How can there be any kind of justice that answers these questions? The scale of wrong is, is so staggering. We haven't even counted up all the terrible things that have happened. There will be things that happen in these wars that we have not discovered and probably will never discover. So in a world of monstrous cruelty, where are we supposed to turn? Like the United Nations, I'm not trying to make fun of them, but the scale is out of whack. How can, how can they put things back in order? Where do we turn? Well, we turn to a God who roars at evil, who says, I'm not going to allow it forever. He sees it. He knows it all. It's not going into endure. He says, I am going to come and I will put it right. One day, everything that's wrong, I'll turn it all inside out. But of course, for those who oppose God, mourning, withering, devastation is all that remains. This verse sets the tone for the rest of the book. God is not happy with the people of Israel, and he is coming with this severe warning. But that does take us to part three, war oracles. 
Have you ever seen a movie where there's like a big battle coming? You know, all the people are getting ready and all the, all the troops. And before they fight, they bring out some sort of like priest or shaman or, or holy man or whatever. And he goes in front of the troops and he gives them a big speech and says, God is on your side. You know, God's going to help you win this. It's a common movie trope. Um, and it's a common trope because in the ancient world, it was common practice. Lots of ancient peoples uh, did things like this. And actually, if you read the book of Kings, the kings of Israel and Judah did this. If they were thinking about going to fight someone, they'd summon a priest or a prophet, and they'd say, hey, could you go ask God? Should we fight this battle? Is it a good idea? And so they'd go ask God, they'd pray, and they'd, it's a longer answer. But if God answered affirmatively, the priest or prophet would go back and tell the king, and then they'd presumably go to the army and say, God told us to fight. He's going to be on our side. Gives you motivation, morale, uh, all, all that kind of stuff. And so the, the rest of chapter 1 and the, the very beginning part of chapter 2 is what I'm calling war oracles because these are prophecies, if you note, not about Israel, not, not about Judah, not about the people of God. They're about foreign nations, enemies of Israel and what God intends to do with them. So the, he's, the, the, the prophet sort of standing in front of the army, in front of the people being like, God is on your side or God is going to deal with these people. Now a couple observations. One, this is a geographic circle of judgment. A geographic circle of judgment. And here's what I mean. Here are the nations named by Amos. Damascus, a.k.a. Syria. Gaza, a.k.a. Philistia. Tyre, that's uh, Phoenicia, the capital of Phoenicia. And then Edom, Ammon, and Moab, six nations. Now, if you look at a map of ancient Israel, and if you have a paper Bible, it's probably in the back there somewhere. You can, you can flip to it. Um, these are the peoples, the people groups, on every side of Israel. So Syria is to the northeast, uh, Philistia to the southwest, Tyre to the northwest, Edom to the southeast, Ammon to the direct east, Moab to the east, and of course west of Israel is just water, the, the Mediterranean. Now why do I mention this? Because Amos is saying, God is saying, there's judgment on every side. Judgment for everyone. No one gets exempted. God is saying, I'm watching over all of the nations. I'm watching what they do. I'm watching what they have done. And I'm going to do something about it. Which leads to my second observation. Judgment is deserved. In, in every case, Amos cites specific sins the other nations have committed. And I'll kind of go through them quickly. If you look at verse 3, he calls out the Syrians for threshing Gilead. Now, threshing is a process where you separate the good part of the plant from, from like the stalk of the plant. And a threshing machine had all these metal teeth and... Um, and they'd kind of like, you know, they, they would gyrate back and forth or whatever. But it was an effective machine, but it was, a, it was very violent looking if you've ever watched a threshing machine uh, kind of work. Now, what did Syria thresh? They didn't thresh crops. They threshed Gilead. Now, Gilead was a region in Israel near the Syrian border. So Amos is saying, uh, Syria, they came into Gilead and they threshed the people of Gilead like plants. That there's been this violent invasion in the past at some point by Syria into Gilead. And if you look at verse 6, Amos calls it the Philistines for enslaving people. The Philistines are sort of known raiders. They had this practice of taking slaves and selling them off. Amos says, this practice is abhorrent. Verse 9, very similarly, Amos says, Tyre, the Phoenicians have participated in selling slaves to Edom. And possibly there's sort of a hint there that they are actually selling slaves that are loosely related to them, cousins, relatives of some kind. Verse 11, Amos says that Edom has killed without pity. They pursued and killed out of anger. They weren't fighting in justice or in self-defense. 
In verse 13, Amos says, the Ammonites have also harmed the people of Gilead. They've kind of added on. They killed pregnant women so they might gain more territory. And in chapter 2, verse 1, Amos says, Moab sinned against Edom. Their sin wasn't even against Israel. They sinned against this other, uh, other nation by desecrating the bones of its king. Now, what does this all tell us? It tells us that God is just in his evaluation of governments and nations everywhere. That God hates, God is opposed to all that is inhumane and oppressive. He hates injustice, he hates killing, and he is holding the peoples accountable for what they have done. Now, here's a question you'll sometimes hear if you say something like that. Well, why is God holding these people accountable for laws they have not agreed to? Maybe Ammon, maybe they had their own moral code and they permitted slavery. You know, how can God judge them according to his standard? God did not give his laws to these nations. He has not made a covenant with them. There's no, you know, UN, international treaties that govern conflict or whatever. How can we go and apply the Bible standard to these people? Well, very helpfully for us, in Romans 2, the Apostle Paul takes up a related question. He says, what does God do about all the people who don't have the law of God? Does he judge them? And if he does judge them, how is that fair? That seems unfair. Uh, and in what Paul writes, Romans 2 verse 14, he says, when the Gentiles, so any non-Jew, when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves. They show the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. What Paul argues in Romans 2 is the light of nature has shown us something. And if you go around the world, nearly all cultures punish murder. Nearly all cultures spare non-military combatants. Nearly all cultures prohibit adultery. Nearly all cultures protect the young, and, and so on and so forth. And most nations, I won't say all, because you can always find an exception here or there. Most nations, we've discerned these rules by the light of nature, by the light of our conscience. Now, if you read Amos 1, there's no mention of God's law. No citations from Leviticus. Uh, they're not, Amos is not accusing these nations of eating unclean animals. Does, God doesn't have a problem with that. He says they are sinning against common sense morality by what nearly all humans know to be just and right. You shouldn't enslave people. You shouldn't kill pregnant women. We, we know this. So God is just in condemning them. And in each and every case, the punishment is fire and destruction. Do you see that? Verse 4, a fire upon the house of Hazael. Verse 7, a fire upon the walls of Gaza. Verse 10, a fire upon the wall of Tyre. Verse 12, a fire upon Taman. Verse 14, fire in the wall of Rabbah. 2 verse 2, a fire upon Moab. It's the same punishment every time. Fire signifies punishment. It also signifies cleansing. God is saying, I am going to clean up what the nations have sullied. I am going to rectify. I will make right everything that is wrong. Justice will be done. They're not getting away with it. God cares how we act. God cares how all the people act. Even in war, God cares how we act. Even when fighting our most bitter enemies, even when dealing with extremely sinful people, even when we are dealing with those who have harmed us, God says, I care how the nations act. I see everything that is done under the sun, all the savagery, all the barbarity will be rectified. And this is part of the reason 
We believe in missions. And we see this in the prophets even. Jonah, Nahum, they actually go to foreign nations, Assyria, uh, to warn them of the wrath to come. They say, look, even though you're Assyrian, you're going to have to answer for your deeds. And what Jesus tells his followers is, now we go to every nation. We tell them of Christ. We make disciples of all the peoples of the earth because all the peoples of the earth are under judgment. But I will note, this speech, not addressed to the people of Ammon or Edom or Philistia, Amos is not wandering the streets of Tyre or Damascus prophesying to them about about the judgment to come. So what we have to ask is, what function does this speech, this sermon serve in the ministry of Amos? Well, think about it this way. Picture Amos standing before, say, an army of Israelites, and they're out on their way to fight some foreign invader. And he's getting them all whipped up, and he's like, remember how the Syrians killed all those Gileadites, and and the Philistines have, have enslaved people and kidnapped people. And the troops are getting rowdy and angry. They're like, yeah, they're, they're getting fired up. And all of Israel sort of nodding along to the speech, agreeing with Amos. They can remember all these injustices. The people are sad and they're mad. And then Amos sort of finishes with his summary. God treats all sin and all sinful nations the same. And the people roar in approval. But that hook has a barb on it. Because if God treats all sinful nations the same, guess what? It's not just doom and gloom for Moab. It's fire and destruction for Israel. Because they too have sinned. It's It's a brilliant speech. Israel is nodding along. Woe to Edom. Woe to Phoenicia. In the end, they've just agreed to their own guilt. If sin is universal, and so is the condemnation of sin, then what about the sin in Samaria? What about the sin in Bethel? The Lord roars from Zion, and Carmel is going to shudder because it won't be long before the Lord's gaze is turned on them. Now this this passage is quite sobering, particularly in light of how many nations there are in the world. Not just six in the Middle East, 200 plus nations in the world, many thousands of people groups inside those nations. God cares how they act. God cares what they do. The church is supposed to be on this mission of making disciples in every nation, that all, every, every, all the peoples of the earth might hear of a God who hates sin and loves justice and loves mercy and who is going to punish wrongdoing. But they will also hear that all of us have transgressed, that all of us have sinned against the law of God and the laws we've made up for ourselves. So in this chapter, we ought to understand that for the three transgressions of me and for four, the Lord will not revoke the punishment. And for the three transgressions of you and for four, the Lord will not revoke the punishment. See, it's not just the names of tribes that you don't really know that well that are written here. Our names are written in these pages because we've all sinned. Yes, you haven't enslaved anyone. Um, Great. Uh, Lust, greed, envy, hatred, all these things infect our hearts. And even as we hear the Lord roar a warning from Zion... We are reminded that Jesus, the Lion of Judah, is also a lamb. And he is going to lay his life down for those condemned to die, for those under the judgment. There is a place to flee the judgment to come. There is a place to go when pastures dry up and the mountaintops wither. And that is to Christ. Now just one more thing I want to say, and then we'll finish up. This chapter lists grievous sins 
I mean, sins that are even just difficult to say out loud. Sins that if you came across them accidentally, you'd, you'd probably throw up. The, the first part of the Christian life, just like this chapter, is simply naming what has been done wrong and saying, that's evil. And that's wrong. This chapter has no gloss. There, there's no polite aphorisms. Amos says, this was terrible, and God is going to punish it, and God hates it. It's unvarnished, it's unprocessed, there's no makeup on, and Amos says, we can't hide these things. But the truth of the gospel is in this question. What if I told you, no matter how badly you had blown up your life, what if there was a way to get through it? What if you had done everything that's written in this chapter? Well, see, Jesus saw us exactly for who we are, and he died for us anyways. He died knowing everything, and he offers forgiveness and love into salvation to any who will accept. But it begins by coming clean, naming what is evil, and then coming to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful, even for difficult texts like this one, which make us uncomfortable. Show us a side of you that we aren't sure that we always like. So Lord, would you help us to be honest with our own sin, to name what needs to be named, to, to flee the judgment to come. Give us eyes to see it and hearts that are humble to embrace the forgiveness and the love that you offer. And it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.